Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is the first in our series that I've entitled Frustration, Failure, and Faith with the subtitle Trusting God in Trying Times. This is a 10-week series in which we'll be looking at a number of character sketches, um, just trying to see what the Bible has to say about frustration, how biblical characters dealt with frustration and with failure, how faith played into all of that. You know, since the day our primeval parents ate the forbidden fruit, frustration's been a part of the human experience. All of us are imperfect people living in a very imperfect world filled with other imperfect people just like ourselves. And all of our attempts to avoid frustration inevitably turn out futile. And in fact, they usually result in even greater frustration. So we ask the question, you know, has God really abandoned this world that He's created? created? Does He really not care? Uh, Wherever we look, injustice seems to reign. Nice people suffer. People who aren't so nice seem to prosper. Families are fragmented more so than ever. And sometimes it all just seems so very hopeless. I think it would be helpful for all of us if we can learn to handle our frustrations more effectively. And certainly the Bible is filled with stories of frustrated people. And some of them handle their problems better than others. And we can learn from all of them. And so when you and I are having trouble, what better place is there to find solutions than the manufacturer's handbook, and that is the Bible. And so over these next course of, uh, of several weeks, we're going to be looking at a number of characters. Many of them are familiar. Today we're going to be looking at Abraham and Sarah. I think most, most of us would be very familiar with them, probably even with the next few, Leah and Jacob and Samson and Jonah. Um, Simon Peter and Martha Bethany will be among the characters that we look at. But then there's some that are perhaps not as well known, such as Naaman and someone named Ahithophel and someone else named Mephibosheth. That, that almost sounds like you sneezed when you say his name. But the truth is, is that all of these people faced frustration, and many others in the Bible as well, and some of them handled their frustrations well, some of them did not. And we can learn a lot from all of them. And today, uh, as I mentioned earlier, our, uh, our topic um, is uh, are the characters Abraham and Sarah, and I've subtitled that when we try to make things happen. And all of us do that. So, and it, that can be a problem. When is waiting the most difficult for most of us? Uh, does God really need help keeping His promises? You know, one time I, uh, my wife and I were at a meeting many, many years ago, and I was talking with a pastor at that meeting, and his wife was standing nearby, and I don't even remember what came up. But uh, in the course of the conversation, uh, something came up about, uh, about doing good and having faith and those kinds of issues. And this pastor's wife spoke up and said, well, you know what the Bible says. It says God helps those who help themselves. And I thought, no, I, you know, that Bible doesn't say that at all. The Bible does encourage us to uh, do good as we have opportunity. But the Bible also tr- uh, insists that we trust in God, and God does not need our help in keeping His promises. Patience is a virtue because it is something that is so unnatural to us. Patience is something, it's a work of the Spirit of God. It's part of the um, aspect of the fruit of the Spirit that we find in Galatians chapter 5. It's not the fruit of the Christian. It's not the fruit of the human being. It's the fruit of the Spirit because we're all by nature impatient people and we need the Spirit of God working in our lives to help us to be patient. 
And one of the things that we're going to see in the lives of Abraham and Sarah and then their life together as a couple is that was, uh, that was certainly a problem. How, how do we develop the ability to wait patiently? And that goes back to how do we learn to really trust in God? So, let's begin our study just by... Uh, by and I encourage you to look at your notes with, with an open Bible. Now, clearly in your reading assignment, there was much more material to read than is on this, uh, these two pages of notes. Uh, these, uh, this is just... Uh, it really is important for you to have read all of this in context. And if you haven't uh, done so uh, before our meeting uh, today, I hope that uh, you'll take the time to read it all because it will uh, it'll certainly make more sense to you. Let's begin by talking about what frustration is. Uh, Merriam-Webster defines frustration as a deep chronic sense or state of insecurity and dissatisfaction that arises from unresolved problems or unfulfilled needs. The online dictionary calls frustration the feeling that accompanies an experience of being thwarted in attaining your goals. That is, that we, we have something in mind that we want to either get or to achieve, and then something blocks that, something gets between us and that goal, and we, as a result, become frustrated. Um, you say, well, what I do is I become angry. Well, um, anger is, uh, is probably a subset of frustration, or, or perhaps it's the other way around. Um, certainly, the, uh, the Bible talks a lot about frustration. It doesn't necessarily use the word that much, but you do find it in the Scriptures. For example, and again, I put this in your notes, uh, first of all, we need to realize that while God uh, very often seems to frustrate us because we have to wait and we don't like to wait, God Himself cannot be frustrated. Notice the passage from Isaiah chapter 14, verses 24 and 27. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned, so it will stand. For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And it's for His stretched out hand, who can turn it back? And of course, the answer to those two questions is no one. No one's going to frustrate God. No one's going to turn His hand back. He's going to he will accomplish what he intends to accomplish. Again, in Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11, it says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He, that is the Lord, frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. What God intends to do, he will accomplish. That, it just doesn't always work out that way for us. Uh, frustration is a very common human experience. Um, Solomon wrote about that in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And this is from the uh, NIV, the New International Version, verses 16 and 17, where, he's, where he wrote, As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. So frustration is part of the human condition in a fallen world. Now we don't have to live as frustrated people. We can live, they're, they're, we're going to face frustrations, but we don't have to stay frustrated all of the time. And so one of the best examples, I think, of that is one that's early on in the Scriptures, and it has to do with, uh, with Abraham and Sarah. Now, when we first meet Abraham and Sarah in the Scriptures, those are not their names. They are named Abram and Sarai. Abram means exalted father, which is rather ironic because... He had no children. Uh, later, God would change his name from Abram to Abraham, which means the father of a multitude or the father of a multitude of nations, which again was ironic because he still would, uh, would not have all of those children. And, uh, and God would change Sarai's name to Sarah, which, uh, which means princess. But let's pick up the story. We begin to see the slow growth of frustration in the, uh, 
in the lives of Abraham and uh, Sarah, and uh, and I'm probably going to call them by the wrong name from time to time, just uh, just out of habit of referring to them as Abraham and Sarah. You'll recall that God uh, had called Abram and to leave Ur of the Chaldees and to go to a land that God uh, would show him, which ultimately turned out to be the land of Canaan. And uh, he was to leave his family and go. Well, he obviously wasn't to leave his wife, so, but he took Sarai, but he also took his nephew Lot and his father, Terah, went along with him. They didn't make it all the way to Canaan. They got to, uh, um, uh, to Haran, which is in modern-day Iran. Uh, they would have come from modern-day Iraq, which is where Ur of the Chaldees was. And it was at that point they stayed there for some undetermined period of time until Terah, the father, finally died. And at that point, then Abram, Sarai, and Lot made their way south and came to uh, the land of Canaan, at which time uh, they found them. They found the land of Canaan in a state of famine, and so because of that, rather than consulting with God and asking God what should we do in this situation, they just made their way on down to uh, to Egypt, where uh, again we they stayed for an undetermined period of time, but apparently it was a very productive time because both uh, Abram and Lot became very wealthy in terms of the amount of livestock that they acquired while they were in Egypt. Uh, obviously up in Canaan there, there was a famine, so there wouldn't have been much pasture. So being in Egypt was a, was a great thing as far as business was concerned. But there was something else that happened while they were in Egypt, and that is they picked up a little slave girl whose name was Hagar. And she is going to play an instrumental part in the frustration that occurs in this family uh, between Abraham and Sarah and also between uh, Sarah and Abraham and God. And there's there's struggles that way. So the point that I'm making, and this is just in your contextual reading, it, it it's not in your notes. Point is that sometimes when we when things look like they are going so well, we need to be really careful. Now there's no question that God was blessing Abram and and uh, and Lot and Sarai while they were in Egypt. But that one little act of picking up that little handmaid, that Egyptian handmaid, Hagar, and bringing her back with them, that was something that was not only going to have lasting implications for them, but have lasting implications for all of us. Because we're all, you just read the headlines today, and you'll see that the effects of Hagar's presence uh, have a present day effect uh, in our lives as well. So we pick up our story, and some of you thought we'd never get there, but in Genesis chapter 15 where it says, after these things, now the, these things refer to a war that was going on. Uh, Lot had been taken captive by some, by some local chieftains or kings, and uh, Abram had gotten together a group of men and, uh, who were loyal to him and had rescued, uh, rescued Lot. And so, of course, the idea comes up, well, now I'm on the outs with all these people who live in this land. And God speaks to that in Genesis chapter 15. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, incidentally, at this point, Abram is 75 years old. Sarah is 10 years younger, so that makes her obviously 65. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. See, notice... Abram would have had a tendency to be fearful uh, of reprisals because of this conflict that was going on between him and some of the local chieftains. And God says, I don't want you to be afraid. I'm your shield. I'm, I'm the one who's going to protect you. He says also, I'm not only am I your shield, but your reward. That is, I'm the one who's going to provide for you. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, now sometimes when we hear the word reward, we always think in terms of dollars and cents. 
That's not what Abram was thinking. Notice what he says. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. That, that was apparently the name of his chief steward who was going to inherit everything after Abram uh, died. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. God says, Let's go outside. Look up into the heavens. You see all those stars. You're going to have offspring like those stars. They're just, they're going to be innumerable. And then verse uh, 6 says, And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. That's an important verse. It's a verse that Paul really uses in the New Testament to talk about justification by faith. This has to do with the imputation of righteousness that on the basis of faith, that is because Abram believed what God said, God accounted it to him, imputed to him righteousness. If you look on the second page of your notes under Roman numeral chapter 5, there's a passage there from Romans chapter 4 uh, that Paul wrote that speaks uh, specifically to this passage that we were just reading. And it has to do with the fact that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Notice what Paul wrote in Romans 4, beginning at verse 20. He says, No unbelief made him, and the him there refers to Abraham or Abram, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Notice, and that's in quotation marks. That's a direct quotation from where we were just reading. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Notice, God will impute to the sinner, the believing sinner, if we believe in that Jesus has died for our sins and that He has been raised from the dead, because His sacrifice has been accepted, and we're willing to believe that that sacrifice was for us, and we're trusting truly in the Lord Jesus, then the Scriptures tell us that God counts that to us as righteousness. In other words, He imputes the very righteousness of His perfect Son to us. He puts that to our account. He takes all of the sin of all of God. He took all of the sin of all of God's people, placed it on Jesus, and Jesus died in their place. And God takes the very righteousness of the Lord Jesus and He places that to the account of the believing sinner. And so when God looks at believers, true believers, He sees us clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. So that's an important uh, theological uh, term. But our, our, again, but I don't want us to spend too much time there, but it's just important to, uh, to note that that's true. That brings us to Genesis chapter 16. Now, how is it how how do we react when God doesn't seem to be working? Now notice God has promised, I'm going to give you offspring. I'm going to give you an heir. In fact, after this thing that we just read in Genesis chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham and uh, promises him essentially before it's all over, he promises him three things. He promises him Land, that is, real estate, land of Canaan. He promises him offspring, and he promises him blessing. That is, through the offspring, blessing will come not only to, to Abraham or Abram, but and not just to the Jewish people who will 
come from Abram, but also it will be <clears throat> this blessing will be a blessing that will go to all of the world. And of course, that has to do with the fact of the proclamation of the gospel that Jesus died for uh, sinners. Uh, Genesis chapter 16. At this point, uh, Abram now is uh, 85 years old. So how old does that make Sarah? Sarai, that's right, she's 75. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Now remember, they, they apparently got this little servant girl when they were down in Egypt, when and God hadn't told them to go to Egypt. So be careful what you call blessings sometimes. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, we look at that and we say, Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. How? That, that's ungodly. Well, this was culturally permissible and it was something that went on all the time in their day. And in fact, it goes on all the time in our day in other parts of the world. That is, when a, a, a wife cannot have children, very often she will arrange for a surrogate. And, uh, and that's what they're doing here. Now, has God told Sarai, you need to get a surrogate? I think we'll see that that indeed is not the case. But she says, go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. You know, the, the truth is we, we can understand why Sarai would come up with this. First of all, uh, it was culturally acceptable. So if it's culturally acceptable, you know, well, this is what everybody else is doing. This is what culture is doing. So maybe this is what God had planned all along. A second way to try to uh, rationalize this is by saying, well, you know, when you look, Abram, when, when you... When we look back at what God said to you back in Genesis, what we call Genesis 15, He said there in verse 4, Your very own son shall be your heir. You notice He didn't really mention me. Uh, so maybe what God had in mind all the time was, was using this, uh, this little servant girl that we picked up while we were down in, uh, in Egypt. But of course that indeed is not the case. But it says, And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, uh, yeah, her husband as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. Now, once she conceived, there began to be a lot of animosity between Sarai and Hagar because Hagar knew that she was carrying Abraham's child and jealousy began to arise and there was a lot of friction between Sarai and, uh, and Hagar and eventually Hagar just ran away and God uh, spoke to her in the wilderness and got her to come back uh, home. Uh, to live with uh, Abram and Sarai. And in verse 15, it says, And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. The name Ishmael means God hears. God has heard me. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So, in the mind of Abram and Sarai, what is Ishmael? He's the answer to their prayer. He, is, he must be the promised one because here he is now. And isn't this just great uh, how, how God uh, is so good? And, and he's even named Ishmael. God has heard us. But then there's Genesis chapter 17. And at this point, Abram now is 99 years old. Sarai is 89 years old. And since Ishmael was born when Abram was 86 years old, don't get lost in the math now, that would make Ishmael 13 years old. So for the last 13 years, when we get to Genesis chapter 17, for the last 13 years, both Abram and Sarai have believed what? That Ishmael 
is the promised one. He is the one. He is the offspring that God promised in this covenant that He made with Abram. That's what they thought. Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Uh, the, the, the part of the word Shaddai, Shad, the, the prefix in that word, is the word that means uh, chest or pectoral muscles. It has the idea of, uh, of one who comforts. It also has the idea of one who gives strength. It's a, it's a place of protection. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So, uh, at this point, God is going to reiterate his uh, the covenant that he has promised to Abram, and he's going to and he reminds Abram that he has an obligation to uh, to obey the Lord. Although when God originally made the covenant, Abram was sound asleep. If you go back to Genesis chapter fifteen and read, and you should have read done that in your reading. You, you will recall that Abram was sound asleep when God made that covenant. Abraham had killed the animals, laid them all out, and then the customary thing was that the two covenant makers both would pass between the dead animals, making their promises. I promise to do this, and then he would say, I promise to do that. And the idea was that if I break my promise, then uh, you have the right to do to me and to all of my offspring what's happened to all these animals that we're passing through. That is, there'll be blood to pay. But of course, Abram was sound asleep and God came in the form of a uh, a furnace or a burning torch. It was a, a, what we call a theophany. And God Himself passed through those pieces and made those covenant promises while Abram was sound asleep. That's what we call a unilateral covenant. God was saying, this is what I'm going to do. It does not depend on Abram. If it depended on Abram, it would never get done. He says, uh, then Abram fell on his face, <clears throat> back to Genesis 17, and uh, God said to him, Behold, my covenants with you no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. Notice there's a kind of a sound that's put into Abram's name and it's the sound of breath, the spirit as it were. And so his name is changed from Abram to Abraham, from exalted father to the father of many nations. He said, your name shall be Abraham for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai your wife, Sarah shall be her name, the princess. I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. Whoa! A son by her. Now this is new. A son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, now he didn't say this to God, he said it to himself, but of course what do we know? We know that God knows the things that we're going to say before we ever say them. What is it, Psalm 139? Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? And then notice this. Now this, this is sort of heart-rending, this next statement. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Notice, Abraham said, I've invested 13 years in this boy. I thought he was a... Why can't we just use Ishmael? But see... Ishmael is a picture of the flesh. It's a picture of helping God out. God waited until Sarah was postmenopausal. There was no physical way that she could have done this. Because God wanted to show that it's going to that salvation is by faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we need to trust in him, not 
trust in Him and help Him out, but to trust in Him alone. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, no, no, it's not going to be that way. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And the word Isaac, the name Isaac, means laughter. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, you know, I, I know you love Ishmael, Abraham. I know you love him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I've blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall be father, uh, he shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. What nation is that? The nation of the, the, the nation of the Arabs. Now, some people, even today, we often will refer to the Egyptians as Arabs. But remember, the nation of Egypt existed back in this day before Ishmael was ever born. So, but this has to do with uh, all of the Arabs. And think about the, the, the difficulty that the offspring of Isaac and the offspring of Ishmael have with one another. And we'll see that uh, in, in just a moment. But I will establish, you know, I'm going to make him a great nation. I'm going to bless him. I've already blessed him. But I'll establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So, notice that the, 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 the frustration has, was growing sort of slowly as, uh, as Abraham was trying to figure out what's going to happen is, is my servant the one that's going to, the one that will inherit all of these holdings? What's going to happen? I sure would like to have a son to carry on my name. And then they try to help God out. And when they do, the frustration just gets more and more intense. In fact, if you look in your notes, uh, I don't recall whether this was in your original reading or not, but, uh, in your notes in part A uh, of Roman numeral 3, the intensification of frustration. Notice that passage from Genesis chapter 16, verse 22. This is what God said about what Ishmael would be like. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Now you think about what's going on today in the headlines in today's paper. And you see God God said it. And it's exactly the way God said. Genesis chapter 18. So, Abram and Sarai have been self-deceived for the last 13 years, convinced that God's promise has been fulfilled in Ishmael. And then God has visited Abraham, Abram changed his name, changed their names, and uh, renewed and reiterated the covenant and, uh, and revealed to them that Ishmael is not the promised one, that Sarah is to be the mother of the promised one. And that brings us to Genesis chapter 18. Now Abraham, verse 11. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. That is, she was no longer having periods. She was postmenopausal. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old. And my Lord there refers to, of course, to her husband Abraham. And incidentally, in the book of 1 Peter, she is commended for referring to her husband in that way, even though at this point she was not expressing faith. In fact, she had a lot of doubts that God was ever going to be able to pull this off. But the fact that she refers to her husband as not as that old fool, but as my Lord, showing her deference and her honor of him, she's commended for that. But anyway, that's a study for a different day. After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And that word pleasure can mean one or perhaps both of a couple of things. And that is one, the pleasure of having a sexual intercourse. But of course, the, the second thing, and probably the emphasis here, the pleasure of having a, a child and particularly a son myself. Because she never expected that to happen. The Lord said to Abraham, Why does Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? 
Is anything too hard for the Lord? And what's the answer to that question? No, of course not. Nothing too tough for the Lord. At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. Why? For she was afraid. God said, no, no. You did laugh. Notice that God's promise of offspring is sure regardless of what Abraham or Sarah thought at this point. Now that brings us to Genesis chapter 21. And here we see frustration and faith together. The Lord visited Sarah as He had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as He had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Now, don't let that verse that, uh, that, that verse get away from you without really noting some things of significance. Notice, the Lord visited Sarah as He had said. The Lord did to Sarah as He had promised. And the Lord and Sarah bore a child at the time of which God had spoken to him. What's the significance of that? God means what He says and says what He means. God certainly is in control. It says, uh, verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son whom Sarah bore him Isaac. Why? Well, that's what God told him to do. So this is obedience. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Okay, Abraham's a hundred. Sarah's 90, and now how old is Ishmael? That's right. Ishmael is, is 14 now. This is, this is about a year later when the child, when Isaac is born. Uh, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Not laugh at me, but laugh over me. You just be... It, it, overjoyed and just like you know can you believe that Sarah actually at her age had a child that that's that's the kind of attitude and just not making fun of Sarah at all it's rejoicing with Sarah in the goodness and the mercy of God at this point and she said who would ever who who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children yet I have borne him a son in his old age and then in verse 8 it says, And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Okay, Now weaning generally took place uh, usually around age 3 to 5, somewhere in that range. So, so say uh, Isaac was about 3 or 4 years old, that would make Ishmael around 16 to 18 years old at the time of Isaac's weaning. Alright. It says in verse nine, and this was at the at the great feast when they were when they were celebrating the fact now that uh, that Isaac was was being weaned from from the mother's breast. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, laughing. Uh, the old King James, I think, uh, uses the term mocking. Now we're not sure what he was doing, but somehow the uh, Ishmael was making fun of uh, of Isaac. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. Of course it would be displeasing to him. Well, you think about it, you know, as I'm sure Abraham was excited over the fact that he had this new son, Isaac. But I mean, let's face it, in that culture and in many cultures today and even to a large extent in our culture, a lot of dads don't have a lot to do with children when they're really, really very small. You know, that obviously a dad can't breastfeed a child, so that's going to be the mom's responsibility. Now, dads do take on a lot of responsibilities today, and I'm not dismissing that or making light of it in any way. But probably in this culture, Abraham had not had a lot to do with him, so he's still investing himself in this kid, Ishmael, who now is somewhere around 16, 17 years old. 
And his wife says, you need to get rid of him and get rid of his mama. Just get him on out of it. And it displeases Abraham when she said that. And notice what God says, verse 12. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman, referring to Hagar. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac, not Ishmael, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Do you, do you see the irony here? That Abraham, years before... 16, 17, 18 years before, had done what Sarah had said. Go into my handmaiden. Perhaps I can have off, perhaps I can provide offspring for you by her. But see, God hadn't told either of them to do that. But now the irony is, notice what God says. He says, now you do what Sarah says. This is going to be heart-wrenching but you do what she says because the promise is not through Ishmael. The promise is coming through this child whose name means laughter. It's coming through Isaac. Notice there's a, uh, uh, there's a passage uh, in part 5, the important theological notes, uh, part B there. And that is continuing in our walk with, with the Lord is by grace alone through faith. Uh, I'm sorry. Is, yeah, is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. We, we, are, we walk with the Lord the same way we're saved. And it's interesting that uh, Paul takes this illustration that we're reading about, this true story in Genesis chapter 21 on the day of the weaning of Isaac and and talks about it in terms of our salvation and in terms of our walking with the Lord. Notice the passage there from Galatians chapter 4, uh, beginning at verse 28. He says, Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, that would have been Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, that would have been Isaac, so also it is now. In Paul's day, uh, there was a group of people called Judaizers who would follow, follow Paul around and follow, follow others around who were preaching the message of the cross. And they would say, well, now, okay, Jesus is a real good start. And it's true you do have to believe in Him. But you remember Jesus Himself was a Jew. So if you're going to follow in the steps of Jesus, uh, you're going to have to be circumcised just like Jesus was circumcised. You're going to have to keep the law the way Jesus kept the law. You're going to have to do all of these things. And Paul said, oh, no, 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 no. We're under a new covenant. We're not under the old covenant. We're under a new covenant. And, there was, and, and they were persecuting people. And, of course, Paul is writing to uh, an era, a, a group of believers in an area called Galatia. So they were almost entirely Gentile believers. But he said there was persecution going on there. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery." He's saying to the Galatians, Paul is writing, saying to the Galatians, don't let anybody put you under bondage. It's not a matter of checking off your boxes. It's not a matter of circumcision or non-circumcision. It's not a matter of kosher or non-kosher. It's not a matter of any of those things. It's a matter of following the Lord Jesus, trusting in Him. How did you get started? You got started uh, by a work of the Spirit as, the, as God... Uh, opened your eyes and your hearts uh, and your minds to the truth of the gospel, and you believed in the Lord Jesus, and that's the way you continue to follow God is by believing in the Lord Jesus. So we see uh, we see Ishmael here is uh, is sent away. And we don't know what the passage of time is exactly between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 20, 
and 22, but obviously some time has uh, has passed because Isaac is uh, is old enough to uh, to be able to carry wood around on his back because there's a tremendous test now that is going to take place in Genesis chapter 22, and the test is this: Can I hold what God has given me with open hands? See, our tendency is when God gives us something is to close our hands on it and say, man, this is great. This is exactly what I need. Isn't God good? Well, yes, God is good. Isn't God gracious? Corey Tinboom once said, I've learned when God gives me things to hold them with an open hand because it hurts when He pries my fingers off. And that's what we see the test is about in Genesis chapter 22. So in the midst of the displeasure that Abraham was experiencing from having to send away his son Ishmael, he has faith. God, God rebukes him. God has promised that he's going to take care of Ishmael. God's reiterated his covenant promises to Abraham saying that they're not going to come through Ishmael, they're going to come through Isaac and through Isaac alone. And Abraham says, I, I, I believe that. Genesis 22, after these things, God tested Abraham. Now when God tests us, it's not to find out what we'll do. God is omniscient. He knows what we're going to do. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac. Notice, well now wait a minute, I thought Abraham had two boys. But see, the only one that God recognizes is the one, as far as the covenant is concerned, is Isaac. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. I know you love that boy. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, a burnt offering was a thanksgiving offering. Here's the message. Abraham, I want you to take Isaac, your only son, the, the boy that you're really investing your life in now, the one that you really love. And I want you to take him to a place that I'm going to specify and I want you to offer him up to me in a sacrifice, and I want you to do it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Mm. So you would think Abraham would sort of kind of want to hedge his bets on that and say, well, I'm, I wonder if that was something I ate last night, and i just having some kind of bad dream. Surely that can't be right. But in verse 3 it says, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac, and they headed out from Mount Moriah. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. And what were they going to do? What kind of worship? Isaac was going to be offered up as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. The boy, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. We're going to go worship and we're coming back. You say, well, now how could he possibly think that? Well, if you look in the left-hand column of your notes, the writer of Hebrews makes a comment about this in Hebrews chapter 11. Beginning at verse 17, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And here's the key. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He was so confident in the promises of God. He had so much faith in the promises of God. And that is that all these promises were going to come through Isaac. That if God were going to require him to put that boy to death, God was going to have to raise that boy from the dead. That's the only, because God was absolutely going to keep his promises.
Now, if God wakes you up in the middle of the night and says you need to go sacrifice your children, don't do it. The ultimate sacrifice has already been made. That's in Christ. We're going over that to worship. We're coming back. Verse 7, And Isaac said to his father Abraham, as they were on their way up the mountainside, My father... And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? See, Isaac didn't know he was going to be the one. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built an altar there. Spread out the wood, put the boy on top of the wood, bound the boy, pulled out the knife, and was ready to plunge it into Isaac's throat. And God stopped him. Don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. Well, wait a minute. God didn't know that he feared God? Well, see, there's several ways of knowing things. God certainly knows everything from the standpoint of omniscience. But there's also the way of knowing by terms of experience. And this would also be a test of Abraham's faith, which is what the way the chapter begins. God tested Abraham. You have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And notice... What God, God stopped Abraham from sacrificing his son. But as God's son hung on the cross and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was no answer that came back. And God didn't stop the crucifixion. God didn't send 12 legions of angels to deal with the Romans and to take Jesus down and take him over to Pilate's palace and say, now, you need to listen to my boy. God didn't spare him because he needed to die. He had to die for my sins and for your sins. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering. And what's the next word? instead of His Son. A substitutionary sacrifice. And here we see a picture. A picture of substitutionary sacrifice. Thousands of years ago, and it all pointed to what would happen one day when Jesus would go to the cross. And if you don't believe that, just look to the left Again, that passage from John chapter 8, verse 56. The, the Jewish uh, leadership is really giving Jesus a hard time. And Jesus says this to them. He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. How did he see it? He saw it by faith. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So what are we to conclude from this story? This story of frustration, this story of faith. What do we, what do we conclude from this? Well, I point you to the, that section, the final section of your, of your notes. And I've just put a few ideas there, and I hope it'll stir up your thinking. Because what, what all of us need to do is make personal application of the Scriptures to ourselves, not just general application. Well, this is what believers ought to do. But now, what God would you have me to do? Where is it in my life that I get so frustrated? And how is it that I can learn to depend upon you and honor you? So, the first part of the application is a question. Why is it that we try to make things happen? That is, that we try to help God out. Now, is there anything wrong with godly initiative? Of course not. God, God 
calls upon us to have initiative. We're to, we're to trust God to accomplish His will. And as we do that, we're to look for and take advantage of opportunities to serve other people. Not by trying to manipulate them or manipulate God for our own benefit, but to serve them. First uh, Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. We're to work, uh, knowing that our labors are not in vain uh, in the Lord. Galatians six ten tells us that uh, we are to take advantage of the opportunities to uh, to serve others, particularly those who are of the household of the faith. Uh, so it's not a matter of not using initiative, but when God makes promises. God doesn't need our help in carrying out the promises. And we don't need to try to make things happen. Why do we do that very often? One thing out of ignorance, because we hold an erroneous view of God. We think His power is limited. We think He needs our help. And we rely on that so-called promise that I quoted before that you cannot find anywhere in the Bible, and that is God helps those who help themselves. That is not in the Bible. So ask yourself this. What situation is there in your life? What relationship is there in your life that you consider as good as dead? Why is it so difficult to trust God in that situation? Second reason that we very often try to help God out is because of our stubbornness. We just want our way. We want it to go our way. We want it to go our way. We want it to, uh, if, if that happens to coincide with God's way, well, that's just wonderful as long as I get what I want. But the third reason that I've noted there is the one that probably is the one that gets most of us, and that is we try to make things happen just because we're impatient. We don't like God's timetable. We don't care for it. We feel as if we've got to do something even if the something that we do turns out to be the wrong thing. If God doesn't act immediately, He must be waiting for me to do something. But see, how do we develop patience? We develop patience by waiting. By waiting with the right attitude toward God and toward other people. God is our source. We need to depend upon Him. Again, there is a place for initiative in the Christian life. Faith and initiative are not incompatible. Not at all. In fact, in James 4.17, it says, Faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. In other words, there should be corresponding action, corresponding work that goes along with our faith. If I really believe God, then I'm going to do this, that, and the other. But my attitude is not, well, I really believe God, but God seems to be dragging His feet or maybe God's busy doing something else, so I'm going to help God out and I'm going to make this thing work. See, that's, that's where we have to draw the dividing line. The key is in our definition of what initiative is. And I like this definition from the uh, book called The Power of, um, of True Success. That may be The Power for True Success. I'm, I may have uh, uh, given the citation incorrectly. But that is that biblical initiative is using the energy of God to achieve the will of God as directed by the Spirit of God. Yes, using God's energy, the power that God gives me. That I'm supposed to do what I do, empowered by the Holy Spirit. But that power is supposed to be used in doing the will of God. But in doing the will of God, I need to do the will of God in the way God wants me to do it, as God directs me to do it. And not say, well, you know, He just wants me to do it, so I'll figure out a way here. No. I need to do it the way He wants me to do it. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Remember that one about not trusting in, in our own thinking, but trusting in the Lord. Don't lean on your own, own understanding. It doesn't say don't use your understanding, but it says don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Psalm 119, verse 105 says that God's Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And the picture is kind of like being out on a camping trip with a Coleman lantern. 
See, now what we want is we want one of these uh, uh, halogen flashlight that can shine 300 yards down the road so we can see what's coming. But God says, no, my word is like a, like a, a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. It's like a Coleman lantern. And when you hold it out, you can see where your next footfall is going to be. And so what do you do? You take that step. And then what happens as you take that step? The light moves ahead of you and you see where your next footfall should be. And you take the next step. And we that's what it means to walk in step with the Spirit. To walk in line with what God would have us to do. Be careful that our assumption, our faith, does not become presumption. We need to have confidence in the God who will not let us go. And we need to be determined to seek His guidance and to do God's will in God's way. Who was it? It was one of the great missionaries who said, Be God's man. And we could say they'd be God's woman. Be God's man. Be God's woman in God's place doing God's will in God's way. I think that's a good lesson to learn from Abraham and Sarah. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.